Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Paul Gordon, founder and head of CoinScrum, which is one of the world's first and still largest and most active Bitcoin and blockchain networking groups based in London. Paul, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Yes, thank you, Paul. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, my background before I entered uh, the crypto space uh, was as a derivatives trader for uh, around 20 years, uh, a floor trader in the 90s on the life market, uh, prop trading for myself um, for the next 10 years after that as well. Um, I came across Bitcoin quite early in 2011 when I first heard about it, when it was mentioned on Channel 4 News, when they were doing a piece about the Silk Road, because um, that first got uh, some attention back then. Uh, I was just intrigued when they mentioned the idea of uh, um, an anonymous online digital currency. Uh, I remember I did spend some time working uh, at some web design agencies um, around the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of early examples or attempts at, you know, creating an online currency. I mean, even PayPal, it was their founder's original objective to really create a stateless payment system. But they hit the same headwinds that many others had um, in terms of regulation. And <laughs> that tends to put pay to uh, best laid plans quite often, um, however idealistic they they might be. Uh, and we'd seen that as well, fairly early attempts at digital currencies, which, um, you know, do actually stem back, way back to the 80s. Um, and you had first attempts of uh, with David Chalm's DigiCash and then um, eGold. So early attempts at, at various digital currencies. And the problems that they'd faced um, was that they were all had some centralized point of failure. Um, and that ultimately meant that they didn't kind of take off because, um, you know, whether it was through legal or regulatory issues, that they, they just didn't happen or survive. So obviously that was you know, the genius behind uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's kind of uh, release of a digital currency, which was completely decentralized and no central point of failure. So it was that piece. And I think when I, when I finally understood the technology, I first came across it and looked at a trading chart with my trader's head on and thought that looks interesting, started to play around with it. And it, it was a good few months before I'd really kind of dug into it enough and it finally clicked uh, you know, to get my head around the actual uh, mechanics of it and once it did it was really the, the very simple notion of um of uh you know a, a a digital asset of fixed supply uh with scarcity attached to it um and that was for me i think irrespective of its use cases or currency or, what, or whatever uh that key feature you know assuming that could be applied to different use cases was game changing for me so that sucked me into the space I turned up at the first Bitcoin meetup in 2012, head full of ideas, uh, maybe looking to meet some people to explore those ideas with. Um, and there was five of us. 
six months later, there was probably more like 70 or 80 of us in the pub. And at that point, I thought, well, let's try and get this more organized. We can't fit in the pub anymore. Uh, so I started kind of getting that community more organized. I uh, gave that meetup a name called Coin Scrum. And I organized that for the next, well, ever since really, uh, up until the unfortunate situation of the last year, we were hosting regular monthly events, um, introducing like the latest projects, which have become household names, but weren't heard, hadn't been heard of back then. Um, and really just with the idea of building a community, building my own network, uh, hopefully getting value out of that. And it, it was a hotbed really for, for many people to come together, share ideas and um, quite often be inspired to go and start their own projects. Um, so it's been fascinating to see how the space has evolved since those very early days. Uh, yeah, I've been to your, a few of your events, uh, Paul. You know, excellent, and uh, I met some very interesting people. Um, you know, when they, when people were still meeting in person rather than uh, online, and uh, you know, they the content has stayed excellent while you, while you're online. I just wondered what you've noticed in terms of the you know the average participant uh, um, in in the you know the meetings. You know, who were they at the you know who were the five people uh, at those earliest days? What were their backgrounds? Um, and you know, is it? How has it changed over the years? Yeah, well, I, I actually, I mean, I was very, I was, I was looking around. I, I just thought everything had been before that, before these meetups started appearing, which was roughly around the same time in kind of main major centers around the world. Um, you know, everything was just, uh, uh, you know, all conversations were happening on on the online forums, whether, um, you know, on, uh, on Reddit or, or other forums. And it was a very, very small community. And I think everyone was itching to get out and meet real people. Um, and I, I was actually thinking there must be some events going on around this and there weren't. And I was actually too scared, not being a developer by background, to actually start my own meetup, which I had thought of. And then September that in 2012, I noticed uh, I was checking and someone had set one up. And I was actually very nervous about going. I thought I'm going to be way out of my depth here. Uh, but when I turned up, it was for very friendly guys. Uh, there was another guy that was a day trader. Um, a chap called Ian, who actually started the group, he kind of launched that meetup, Ian Cresswell. Um, he was you know, just general hobbyist. He was doing a bit of mining. Um, he was just, you know, just just looking at it and uh, I'm trying to understand it as uh, on the side from his day job. Uh, and then there were two developers there, both at that time working for banks um, in their technology teams. Um, so, so that was the core. Over the next few months, um, it opened up as people started coming through. Very similar backgrounds, but from all walks, from you know, uh, first lawyers coming in, a couple of ex-bankers coming in that were maybe retired and just interested in this. Um, and then a lot, obviously, at that time, a very uh, kind of high density of developers as well. Um, but it did really attract people from all walks of life. And, uh, and, you know, we had one or two people that were working on, you know, Bitcoin Core at the time. Um, so fascinating to see their background. Um, but what was very typical at that time was like the ideology behind it, which was, um, you know, whether it's a narco-capitalist, the sentiment that this technology was going to bring down banks and governments. Um, and I think that I that, that's been the big change where, there was, you know, the concentration of that ideology within these communities was very high back then. Uh, but I always assumed that, you know, however smart the technology was or, you know, what it could do to disrupt the existing financial system wasn't going to change people's ideologies necessarily over time. So I thought that would become diluted. And I think that's a big change that we have seen is that, um, you know, there's a bit more pragmatism as people have come in now. And that ideology, which I think is a shame a little bit. I think we do need to maintain that, but it's definitely not as concentrated as it was. 
But, you know, even going back to those early days, thinking about projects such as Ethereum, um, John Harrison, who was one of the first members of that first, uh, that first meetup, um, uh, he was friends with Gavin Wood, who became co-founder of Ethereum and uh, the chief architect at Ethereum. Um, it was actually Vitalik Buterin's flatmate, um, Mihai uh, Lacey. He was working with Vitalik on Bitcoin Magazine, which they'd launched together with some others. Uh, so he used to come to the events and um, he'd just asked John if he knew, uh, I think it was a C plus developer he was looking for to join the Ethereum project, which was before it had been publicly announced, but they were looking to build their team. So um, Johnny said, yeah, my friend's lecturing at, I think it was Leicester University, something like that. Um, I'll introduce them. So that was fascinating to see how, you know, at that very kind of beginnings of that project being there when these teams were being formed, speaking to those team members and, uh, you know, with their vision or getting to understand their vision and then seeing it go from literally nothing to where it's got to today. Um, and there's you know, many, many other similar examples of that. You, you mentioned the origins of uh, cryptocurrencies and um, you know, sort of intellectual support for cryptocurrencies being on message boards. We know that Bitcoin was started, you know, after there'd been a, some exchanges on, you know, amongst uh, cypherpunks on a, on a messaging list over, over many years. Uh, and Satoshi Nakamoto was on that list. Uh, you know, what, what do you think more broadly about the role of um, social media or the, the, the way that these projects have grown in many cases completely organically and in, and in, the, in, you know, in the face of significant headwinds? Because Bitcoin, since its uh, inception, has had a lot of negative press. It's had a lot of, uh, you know, they, they, it was been, it's been uh, dismissed by central banks. You know, bankers didn't want to bank anyone who was touching cryptocurrencies. And yet these projects are still grown what does that i mean uh, we're talking uh, you know on a day when this uh, this um, you know assault by people on a re- another uh, message board reddit have you know they they've been t- uh, going after stocks that have heavy short interest and and and, and making the price uh, you know soar and as they squeeze the shorts but that's again being you know being conducted from uh, you know you know by by crowds uh, i suppose crowd it's a kind of crowdsourced uh, short squeeze what what does this all tell us about the way you know, financial markets have changed and money is evolving. Yeah, well, I think uh, there's two, two, two aspects to that. And, um, you know, community um, and, uh, you know, social media as it is now are essential, have been essential and have obviously aided the growth. I mean, you know, the forums were a perfect way for people because, you know, bearing in mind when those forums started, if we go from there, that uh, uh, initial cryptographers message board where there's literally a handful of people on there uh, and then going on to the Bit- Bitcoin talk forum, you know, it was everyone was scattered all around the world. So without those, there's no way that people would have got together in person until it reached a critical mass where there was a, you know, enough um, interest where five people could meet in London. So, I mean, you know, that shows you how little um, kind of awareness there was at the time. So those, you know, those forums have been essential um, and a, a real positive. Um, and this is all about just the dissemination of information, which applies to financial markets anyway. Um, now, you also tie into that, you know, as you mentioned, just money in general and, you know, whatever type of money that we've used throughout history requires faith of some sort, whether it's a stateless currency such as gold or a fiat system. Uh, even then, it's having faith in the issuer and your governments, and that's not always worked out over history as well. So, you know, all of these things tied together and are, are relevant, but it becomes a double-edged sword because, and this is, doesn't, I don't think this just applies to crypto, but I think it's, you know, very prevalent in this space. 
is the tribalism that's formed around these different projects as they come along. I mean, everyone should be fighting the same corner at the end of the day. Um, everyone should be appreciating that if there's a new project that at the very least lessons are going to be learned from that project um, and that that should you know, uh, cross-pollinate other projects and educate other people. But instead, we've seen this real quite aggressive, quite crass tribalism form and I don't think that's been helpful. So, you know, there's pros and there's cons. But, you know, as you mentioned, this is very similar to the scenario of last week um, um, as well that, you know, they can be powerful. So I, you've just got to take the rough with the smooth, I think, and we end up meeting somewhere in the middle. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess my view would be that tribalism is just part of human nature. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And then that made me, as you were talking, I, I thought about the the forks we saw in Bitcoin in, in 2017 when you know, various groups associated with Bitcoin disagreed on how to take the project forward. And and I thought, you know, looking back, it looks like quite an, uh, a, a clever or a very clever way to handle these disputes. You know, the, the people who thought differently could go in a different direction. And then it was, you know, the, 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 you know, the number of people that wanted to stay with one group or the other or the, you know, one or three groups uh, determine which one really, I mean, they're all still there, but they're in, in a couple of them being kind of renamed or reconstructed. But, uh, you know, in, in a sense, the, the crowd decides uh, and, and, you know, that's where we are today. Absolutely. I mean, I've always thought from quite early on, and I know some people, some uh, smarter people than me have written some very interested, inter- interesting pieces on this, is that these do very much look like natural systems um, and survival of the fittest and um, natural selection. And there's a lot of conference, there's been a lot of conversation about governance of these systems as well, because with decentralized systems and open source uh, software projects, you know, it's very difficult to appoint a leader as such. And I think you know, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto himself or the team behind it knew that for themselves. And it was a very clever move to stay completely anonymous. Um, other projects that have come along since do effectively have quite often what can be termed as a benevolent dictator model um, where you know it, it, it puts their founders in the spotlight and puts a lot of pressure on them as well and they're there to be publicly attacked. In terms of governance, this yeah. is, you know this is a, um, a very interesting debate and there's been a lot of people since Bitcoin saying you know lack of governance is a problem without it, it slows projects down. Um, and, and and that's a problem for uh, innovation at speed. And that's a fair argument. Now, if you want to, which I do, take a much longer to view on this, you know, I think Bitcoin will be around in 100 years, so I won't be here. Um, but, you know, people that, and I think this is a mindset typical of Bitcoin developers versus, say, Ethereum developers who want to kind of, you know, um, move at a much faster pace. And that's fine because that allows faster innovation and experimentations, but things do break. Where the mindset yeah. of a Bitcoin core developer is, it will take as long as it takes, but it will be robust. Um, they, they can both coexist. But, you know, the fact that, you know, if we go back to the, you know, it, it, the, the kind of co- the essence of Bitcoin itself and the, that idea that, look, anyone can come along, take the code and change it slightly. And if the network adopts it, um, then fine. If the network as a whole adopts it, then fine. If it turns into a fork and it, that fork goes into two different directions, two different ideologies, two different opinions around um, like technological solutions, 
then fine. And, you know, it will be survival of the fittest. And there's nothing to say that some of these forks which have dwindled but are still there, as you say, in the background, you know, they may lie dormant for years um, and everyone's still kind of, you know, um, you know, gathered around the main chain, so to speak, and uh, uh, and the the network effect the main chain has got that survived and has been the strongest, which is Bitcoin right now, um, will carry on. But, you know, maybe that will change and then maybe features will be added to the fork over time or one of the forks over time that will bring it back up. I'm not sure about it. That would be kind of, you know, intriguing, uh, you know, if Dogecoin got picked up in 10 years time, uh, which was invented as a joke and then uh, suddenly was put to some major use. We don't know. Absolutely. None of us know for sure. And the thing is, as long as they're there and they survive, just like a seed can sit in the ground for, you know, 50 years on occasion and then the rains come along and it it, it, it starts to grow into a, a, a tree, then, you know, the same things could, could happen here. Yeah. So where, where does this leave the traditional financial system? I mean, I, I know that's a big question, but uh, they, 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 many you know, central banks have rubbished Bitcoin. They've cautioned against it, uh, cautioned against cryptocurrencies. Probably, probably in the last year or two, things have started to change. And I guess from the perspective of, the, those working at banks or at asset managers, people started to take a, an interest uh, earlier than that. You know, what, from your vantage point, you're, you're hosting events all the time involving people from across the community. You know, how, how far has the integration uh, gone between those two areas of the financial markets? Well, I mean, especially over the last year, we've clearly seen a change in narrative um, from you know, anyone that's been around maybe as long as I have and others you know, it was a tough sell to anyone. We were we were kind of treated as crazies, as amongst my friends and as amongst my peers' friends as well. I mean, really, they it was something you got so fascinated by um, and deeply kind of involved with. You probably were boring people to get to death, and they just didn't want to go out of their way to understand it. And you did, and probably still do, or should you know, take the time to really go and understand the technology um, first. And I think that was the same for, you know, people, various people at banks or financial institutions. They just didn't really go and educate themselves. They saw the volatility. They saw the headlines and, you know, the the easy headlines about uh, criminal use and all of this and just dismissed it. But it's proven that it, you know, for all its hype cycles and crashes it's had, it survived and it continues to grow. Uh, and now we do, uh, you know, uh, investors and fund managers have taken the time. Um, they've seen that it's survived and still bounces back every time. And, you know, confidence is building in them. It's never going to be everyone at once. And, you know, the 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 core of the you know, uh, incumbent financial system is, is always going to be the last ones to move because they've got the most to lose. Um, but also, again, if we look at this over a very long time frame, the technology, as fascinating as it was, as smart as it was, was still very, very raw. Um, and Bitcoin itself is a base layer technology which could support many things, but those things are going to take a long time to build. So base, base layer in the there. sense that it can only handle seven transactions a second or whatever the number is, and that you know you, you have to wait... Uh, six blocks or about an hour before your transaction is considered for, uh, your yeah your transaction is considered you know pretty much settled or fi- you know finally settled the, it's it's quite it's quite a, it's obviously energy intensive you know these, these it's quite a clunky technology in that sense yeah absolutely and there's the thing is there's always going to be a trade off between um security and um and efficiency so if you want both you're not going to get them so the base chain is always going to be there. And for certain use cases, 
as a transaction layer, it will serve a purpose. Some people argue, you know, maybe it would just be a kind of settlement layer for large scale transactions in the future where, you know, even if it's taking an hour to settle, that's still way quicker than if you are comparing it to something like gold or even existing cross-border payments. You know, that's you know, orders of magnitude faster than what we have today. Now, you know, that doesn't lend itself necessarily to if this is going to be used as some sort of currency, which, you know, I'd, I'd still argue we're a long way from that just because it's because of its volatility. But that doesn't mean over a long period of time that couldn't settle. Um, is that, you know, there could be new layers built on top. And we're already seeing examples of this that for scalability, then you have to build additional layers on top and there will be a trade-off. Those layers may be less secure, but they will be faster and more efficient. Lightning is probably the best known one on Bitcoin that's being developed and um, still relatively experimental, but a lot of people working on it and uh, some of its flaws will be ironed out and maybe that will be the use case. But there's other examples um, of uh, you know proposals or actual uh, new implementations coming down the line, which will start to address some of these problems. But if you want to do it, um, you know, in a secure fashion in terms of the um, the development of the software itself, then you know, in many cases, that has to happen at a slow and steady pace. Hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned um, you know cycles of adoption, hype cycles. Uh, clearly, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies had a uh, a community of enthusiasts at the beginning, people who were interested in addressing particular problems such as uh, censorship resistance, achieving censorship resistance or uh, uncensorable money transactions. Uh, that Over time, that community has now widened to taking some asset managers, people interested in, the, in their potential financial performance. Um, now we've got some companies coming in and saying they want to view Bitcoin as an alternative to the dollar or to gold uh, for treasury assets and, and making a big thing out of that. Uh, in recent months, there's been a, a lot of press coverage of institutions getting involved from hedge funds to some of the bigger traditional asset managers. Uh, where, where do, I mean, it's obviously very difficult to, to take a step back and look at these things from the side, but do you have any gut feeling for where we you know, might be? It's, it, it, from, like from, from my perspective, it's not we haven't achieved the kind of crazy... Uh, um, uh, internet-based uh, or social media-based uh, uh, hype that we had in late 2017, but may, you know maybe we maybe we'll be looking at a slightly different area of the market this time. Where you know wh- where are we? Do you think in the in the overall um, scheme of things? You know, wh- are we are we at the top of another hype cycle, or do you think there's more to go? Well, you know, this isn't financial advice, and um, any any trader will have their own opinion. Uh, but I always uh, do advocate for doing uh, your own research. Although I have published a couple of articles over the last three years uh, in, t- in taking a long term view um, in terms of uh, price action and how that has evolved over time from the very beginning. Um, and and there's there's you know, there's a whole number of theories out there. One um, model which has gained a lot of attention um, over the last couple of years is uh, uh, called the Bitcoin stock to flow model, which has been proposed by uh, an anonymous uh, uh, Twitter influencer called Plan B. Um, and that's a model which has been applied to commodities over the years. And because Bitcoin, you know, holds many values as a physical commodity such as gold or silver, et cetera. He's applied the same theory to it. And 
from that, looking back slightly um, and then looking into the future, it's, it's, it's followed this model. And that's fine. I think, you know, I, I don't really buy into the theory. I'm not sure it completely, uh, you can argue that it completely aligns with, um, with uh, how that works for physical commodities. Um, but, you know, for now, that model stands. And so people are looking at its predictive nature for going forward and it's predicting that, you know, bull markets running up to like 150, 300,000 and, and way beyond in the next cycles. Um, personally, I mean, I've looked at similar cycles. Um, I, as with my ex-trader hat on, I used to follow Elliott Wave theory, which again, I, I won't argue that it's, you know, there's it's some perfect form of technical analysis. Um, what I did like about it is when I first saw a Bitcoin chart, the first wave, so to speak, um, and pattern that I saw on that chart was a textbook Elliott wave. Um, it's a five wave cycle, three advancing waves and two correction waves in between. And that's really what caught my attention. Now, the thing about Elliott waves, and I think more people would have uh, more commonly heard about Gartner hype cycles as applied to uh, a technology adoption. And, you know, Bitcoin is a technology. It's also a commodity. So you can see these uh, these the, the two comparisons. Now, Elliot came up with this theory back in the 30s um, and is really trying to apply it to stock markets. And that was really a theory about human behavior and repeated human behavior um, and different cycles they adopt of kind of, you know, um, fear and greed, basically, and how these cycles build in these waves. So I found that fascinating because at that time and to a degree still, um, compared to other markets, Bitcoin is you know, it's less influenced by, you know, outside actors. It doesn't have central banks like dictating policy or being able to kind of, you know, change money supply and influence markets in that way. So I just thought then that was my first thought. So this is going to be very interesting to see if this plays out because you've never had the opportunity to go back to the very beginning of a, an asset or even a publicly traded share where you can map the price because, you know, by the time a company goes uh, does an IPO, it's got a number of years history before that. And you don't really know what the price chart looked like. Um, and you certainly don't have that, you know, those records with stock markets, which you in theory can go back hundreds of years or, you know, the price of gold, which goes back even further. So I just thought this is a, a very interesting opportunity to see how this plays out. Um, because once once these cycles get bigger, the time span over which they play out gets so large that it's not really useful to use as a trader because, they could be predictive, but that prediction might be over five, six, eight, ten years to play out. That's no good to me necessarily as a trader or even as an investor in many, many cases. So I thought, let's look at that. And so I took that first wave hype cycle in 2011, where we went, Bitcoin went from virtually zero to $32, crashed back down to $2. And I thought, let's see if that plays out again at a larger scale. The idea is that that, is be, that small fractal will become a larger fractal over time, and that will become a larger fractal again. So I kind of jotted that down and it played out when we went to this new cycle up to $1,300 around there in, in 2013, we repeated that same five wave pattern. So I'm like, okay, so now we have this larger fractal. If that plays out again, we're going to crash, which we did. We went down to $150 and then we'll go and make a new all time high. We're correct. And then we'll go up again. And I kind of jotted down some charts. I did publish it and it has pretty much played out as that. Now we've gone to this new high. In my mind, this wherever this kind of current move stops, it could have been hit the high already for all I, all I know. It could carry on to $150,000. What I'm pretty sure about is that will be the completion of this full cycle since the beginning of Bitcoin, so a, a 10, 11-year cycle. And after that, we'll go into another corrective wave. And that will, in my mind, be a much longer corrective wave because 
that will be correcting this whole 10-year cycle up. Um, so that's what I'm interested in seeing. You know, we've gone to a new high. Um, in terms of Elliott Wave theory itself, we've made this new high. That is the pattern completed. It could carry on. Now, as a last, last kind of pointer, just that I think, you know, where could this go to? Those three previous bubble cycles, which was 2011, there was effectively two uh, kind of uh, a, a bubble within a bubble in 2013. On all three occasions, um, the markets or the price topped out when um, we got to well, in tw- the two in 2013 and the one in 2017, when we hit $20,000, the market got so stretched that it hit 20 times the current 200-week moving average price. Okay. Mm. And so it hit that point exactly on all three occasions. So that was like way overstretched, way overdone. You know, it's like a rubber band. It's going to come back down to its average. And it did every time. And that 200-week moving average has been support the whole time throughout Bitcoin. It's briefed mm. it very briefly within a week, um, but it's always closed above it on something like 28 occasions now. So that's obviously a meaningful level. Um, and also we have three data points to know when the market's overstretched. So that would currently, that 200 times the current, two, uh, two, sorry, 20 times the current 200 week moving average uh, today would take us to just over $150,000. So by comparison to those three previous cycles, we're not nearly as overstretched. Will we get there again? I can't possibly say, but if it got anywhere near there, I'd be thinking this is kind of overdone now. Mm. Um, thank you for. I, mean, I also uh, uh, was interested in Elliott Wave when uh, back in the day, and uh, you know, st- still find the you know the way he describes kind of natural processes and uh, fractal uh, fractals within fractals very uh, very intuitive. Uh, but as you say, it's quite difficult to attach um, you know, specific price limits, or it's, you know, we don't know. I mean, we have to kind of take a step back, and it's, it's obviously visible in hindsight, but we're not sure where we are at any particular time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But as I said, you know, it has been, in hindsight, quite predictive. You know, if you trusted if you trusted what it was potentially predicting, you know, that's always difficult as a trader, then it has played out pretty accurately so far. Yeah. So, um, bearing in mind. And and the the companies that did well uh, during the the last bear market from 2017 until the price started taking off again last year uh, were the ones probably... You know, the, some exchanges did very well. Some people working in cryptocurrency custody uh, did, did, did well. You know, they, they set themselves up very well for the latest bull market. Um, if we do, if we do go into a downtrend, you know, what uh, which areas of the market, which areas of business, uh, uh, which areas of technology do you think are going to be best to be involved in? Well, I, so you know, if, if we do go into this longer term bear market, I mean, we'll, at some point that you know, we will do. However, it's as long as ten years, as I'm suggesting it could be, or much shorter. You know, remains to be seen. But I do think, you know, there are headwinds there as well, and I think we're starting to see some of that now. I think when we had you know, earlier in the month, when everything kind of bubbled up to highs and Bitcoin hit forty two thousand um, dollars, we just about hit a one trillion market cap for all cryptos. I think Bitcoin was about half of that or just over half of that. Um, Now, at the same time this month, we've still seen some negative murmurings from people like Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde, central banks getting maybe nervous, saying we can't really just let this run kind of haywire. And we've got to think if we do go to these much more extreme levels that some people are predicting, then we're talking about you know, getting into the trillions of value, how we perceive value. Now, 
if and when that happens, there's going to be more concern. Um, and so my, my, what I'm wondering is what those headwinds will become, you know, will it just start to become a victim of its own success, make kind of governments, central banks that much more nervous where they want to start trying to put pressure on it in the long run, they won't kill it. I don't think they, I don't think they necessarily want to kill it, but I think they probably want to put some more levels of control in place, whether they're successful or not. I don't know, but I think it will create some kind of ongoing battle. And I think what will go in tandem with that, um, which we're already starting to see, and again, if I look back and when people often ask, what do you think Bitcoin's killer app is going to be, where it can really go to mass adoption? Yes, there's scaling issues. Um, and as much as this might be against the original and early ideology, which I did buy into to a degree, um, is around digital identity. Um I think digital identity is going to be a big play in the next few years. It ties into the current memes of everything that's going on in the world right now. We're heading towards, you know, a digitization of identity and maybe passports and then having to have all sorts of information whether you've been vaccinated on that. So that's going to play out anyway. At the same time, you've got Facebook still pushing ahead with um, what they had called Libra, the Libra project. They've rebranded it as DM. Um, and they're dealing much more directly and um, with, with regulators and central banks just because of their reach, that if suddenly they they effectively issue a stable coin and it's immediately in the hands of, um, you know, 3 billion users, that's more concerning for regulators than, you know, waiting for you know, relative, still a relatively small number of people to adopt Bitcoin itself. Now, something like DM had identity baked into it from the beginning as part of its design. And you know where governments and regulators have been quite dismissive. I think they're going to eventually see what a real opportunity that is. I don't, you know, and I think that the, the concern is that that those systems get designed from the top down by regulators and governments. Where I think that will be a huge mistake. What I think needs to happen, and hopefully will happen, is that people within direct, you know, within the crypto industry and the blockchain industry at large. They're the ones that need to be building these systems because they build them better. Um, you know, they might you know hit some barriers at first with getting regulators or governments comfortable with it, but we do need to move away where all of our information is just freely made available to authorities everywhere. And I think we can build better systems, um, and we'll come up with solutions which you know find some kind of middle ground where you know the term self-sovereign identity is used widely where. You know, individuals will maintain more, much more ownership of their information and identity and share it when they need to share it rather than the big data silos such as Facebook and Amazon and Google having all of that information and, and using it and abusing it effectively. Yeah. So, and so I, are, you, are, you, are you talking about uh, people's cryptocurrency wallets, which, you know, uh, or, or maybe a few Satoshis in those wallets being used as the basis for each individual's digital ID? Yeah, I think it. I, you know, I think uh, designed correctly, um, that these systems will basically sit on top of other blockchain systems. So whether you know you'll have an identity system which is interoperable, whether you're sending Bitcoin from your wallet, ETH from your wallet, but you know, I at the very least, part of that battle I think is um, regulators or governments putting eventually putting into place some laws about what information does need to be shared, but hopefully in a way that allows that identity not to have to be shared with everyone. Um, and on a case by case and a point by point basis for the, the user and the individual to, to offer them some level of 
protection from what they're having to share all the time. So I think that type of models really what will, how how things will pan out. Yeah, but the, but that's a, that's that must be a very long term project because we've still got governments you know, scrambling around trying to do everything uh, on a national basis and a national. Uh, well, obviously we have passports which are issued by governments, but the people of countries have still got stuck on the idea of having national. You know, ID systems for their vaccine programs and, and 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 travel permissions and so on and so forth. It's going to take a while to get there. No, absolutely, um, it will do. Uh, I guess governments are quite busy right now. So I think you know, and generally, look, they are. You know, on one hand, they can sound quite ne- negative and be looking to kind of maintain their level of control, uh, but regulators are generally quite uh, encouraging of innovation. Um, and so, you know, as long as they don't jump in too quickly, there's been, you know, some arguments that the Europeans have dived in quite quickly with their new micro-regulations and maybe they need to take a step back. Otherwise, it's, you know, they're just going to stifle innovation. Um, but, you know, I, the, the kind of the optimist in me, you know, thinks that after that period um, or throughout that period, we'll, we will come up with better solutions that we have today. But I mean, that's one potential headwind. I do think there's another one which will potentially play out as well, um, which is really, I guess, looking at countries like China and what they're now doing with their own version of the digital yuan, um, which has woken all the central banks up to looking into creating their own uh, digital fiat versions of um, fiat digital currencies or central bank digital currencies. So China's well ahead. They've already got, you know, their digital one out there being used and um, and trialed. You know the the idea that they will use that um, to kind of start to press down on you know dollar US dollar dominance. I think is a given. I think everyone can see that coming. Um, so there's that's that's going to be a cause of concern, which could cause panic for governments as well about digital currencies in general, because I think that's a battle that the US will face over the coming years. And it will be interesting to see how digital currencies in general um, are then approached because of that. And not only that, another part of Bitcoin in particular that we started to see already um, last year. I mean, I, I don't think it got too many headlines is that certain nation states have started to mine Bitcoin. Uh, the Iranians, uh, the Iranian government uh, last summer gave permission to their energy companies to use excess power to start mining Bitcoin. And then shortly after that, um, they uh, put another edict in place which said those same uh, energy companies that were mining Bitcoin had to sell them or could sell them, but they had to sell them to the central bank of Iran. Um, now, this is, and they openly said, you know, we can bypass sanctions if the US are going to kind of, you know, continue with their sanctions against us and we can't do trade and business, then we can find other ways. And that is the thing that this technology is enabling. And I think that is what, again, over this potential period of a few years after this next hype cycle completes is going to be one of the big narratives as well and what concerns that opens up especially for the US if they start they could they could potentially start to see a two-pronged attack on the dollar from bitcoin and from the digital one and i think that will be another part of the narrative yeah paul thank you very much for taking the time to chat to us it's been uh, very uh, interesting and uh, it's been been a pleasure to talk to you so i look forward to staying in touch and to speaking soon no thanks for having me on
Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.